Good to see everybody this morning and to be gathered together in consideration of God's Word. Um, we have persons in the aisle with Bibles this morning. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand uh, and uh, these folks will bring you one. So anybody need a Bible, just raise your hand high so they can see you and uh, we'll bring you one this morning. Uh, ESV study Bibles. How about that? They weigh 700 pounds, but they are really good resources. All right. And uh, so we take those and listen, beloved, this is like Christmas, right? Because the next thing I say is this. If you don't have a Bible at home, now that's, now listen. If you don't have a Bible at home, now not if you don't have a Bible you don't like no more. If you, if you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to take this as our gift to you. We would like nothing more for you to have the biggest Bible on the market, uh, you know, available to you, uh, footnotes and all. So raise your hands, and uh, we'd be happy to have you have a Bible this morning. Okay, everybody who needs one, have one. All right, then. Praise God. This is the incredible shrinking pulpit this morning. I'm not sure what's happening. Okay. Lift the little thing right here. That's what's happening. This one down here, maybe. There we go. That's too high. I think we're good now. Excellent. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 6. All right. There we go. That's cool. (laughs) Thank you, brother. I love that. If you're new to Anacostia River Church, what you're seeing here is the servant's heart that the Lord has given the people here, the saints here. So thank our brother for serving us this morning. All right. And uh, let's give God praise for people working sound and children's ministry this morning. They're serving very faithfully this morning. And um, praise God for his work in Tim's life. Let's just praise God for the goodness in Tim's life and encouragement. Thank you for that encouragement this morning, brother. Amen. Let me offer a word of prayer and we'll turn to God's word. Father, we do give you praise this morning that we have the privilege now to hear your word. And that's what we wish to hear. We wish to hear you speak to us this morning. Oh Lord, open the ears of your servants. Let us hear that sweet, oh Lord, voice of glory. And open the ears of those who came, oh Lord, purpose not to hear. Lord, for whatever reason, who are finding it difficult to receive your word. Maybe you're here this morning at the insistence of another and and feel a little bit coerced. Whether those are children or adults. Oh, Lord, would you be kind this morning? Open hearts, open ears, open minds that all may see you and all may know you and that all may love you. Speak to us by your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We are not looking for a pastor-in-chief, but for a commander-in-chief. You have perhaps heard those words or read those words in this election season. Uh, Those are words that are often offered very often to try and help people think through the difficulty of looking at fallen human leaders and trying to choose among them. We are not looking for a pastor-in-chief, but a commander-in-chief. And yet if you're a Christian and you've ever been well-pastored, 
There's something unsatisfying about those words, isn't there? Uh, no, you, if you have had the blessing of a good pastor, then you have likely known someone who was um, praiseworthy in some level, whose character was inspiring, at least a, a model in some ways, whose affection for you, whose love for you has, has only served to make you respect and appreciate them more. So well-pastored sheep, though they understand they're not looking for a commander-in-chief, nevertheless would still like him to be a little bit pastoral, wouldn't they? In this life, commanders and pastors don't often occupy the same position. But if we're Christians, we have one who is prophet, priest, and king. Our commander-in-chief is also our pastor-in-chief. And it's to him we look this morning in Zechariah 6. For it's this one which was the hope of Israel when they were recovering from exile. Zechariah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Amen. Well, in this book, we have been considering the life and the needs of ancient Israel. They have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. 
Now under Nehemiah and Ezra come back into the land of Israel. They are rebuilding the, the walls and the temple for worship in Israel. They are facing all kinds of opposition from hostile enemies that are in the land. And they have been facing their own discouragement, their own weakness, as they have sought to do the work of God. And Zephaniah, or excuse me, Zechariah has been sent as a prophet to Israel to encourage them, to give them the word of the Lord and to exhort them in the work of the Lord, to strengthen their hearts, to strengthen feeble hands, to to strengthen feeble knees so that not fainting, not doubting, not falling away, they would continue to do the work of the Lord until that work was completed. Zechariah is given in this chapter uh, two visions or prophecies. The first of four chariots and the second of the crowning of Joshua the high priest. And in these two visions, I want to suggest to you that God is telling Israel three things about himself. First of all, he's telling Israel what puts his spirit or his heart at rest. That's what we see in verses 1 to 8. God's heart at rest. And secondly, he's revealing his priest crowned. So God crowns his priest in verses 9 to 14. And in verse 15, he's revealing his plan to gather his people. To gather his people. So we see God's heart at rest. We see God's priest crowned. We see God's people gathered. And in all of this, the Lord encourages his people and encourages his church today. Let's see what puts God's heart at rest. It's there in verses 1 to 8. It's the first vision. Zechariah looks up again in verse 1 and he sees this vision. And it's a vision of four chariots coming between two mountains, and the mountains are made of bronze. In the ancient world, chariots were a symbol of a, of a kingdom's strength. A country with many chariots and a vast army of chariots would have been a, a strong, dominant country. Think of Egypt, for example, with its royal horses and its chariots. Here Zechariah sees four coming from between the mountains. And these four here are, 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 are probably representative of angels as well. We'll get to that in a moment. Those four chariots, notice, they, they came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were of bronze. Again, in the ancient world, bronze was considered a metal of, of strength. It was often used in a soldier's weaponry. And so we get these two imposing mountains made of bronze, strong and towering between which these horses and chariots come. And that's the third thing to observe is the the horses in this picture. According to verse 2, they were red and black and white and not dapper, but dappled. We're not told how many horses there were in all. Nothing is said about the, the symbolism of the horses in the text, but Zechariah describes them further at the end of verse 3. Notice there he says, all of them strong. You see the repetition of strength there? Strength in the chariots, strength in the mountains, strength in the horses. Those horses had been before the Lord. 
Now they're coming out to go into all the earth to carry the Lord's decree and the Lord's will. God is saying in this picture in part that he is strong. All that he does is strong. His power is without limit. Strong horses, strong chariots, strong mountains communicate to us a a strong God. But I love Zechariah. Zechariah asked a question in verse 4 that we all asked when we read Zechariah 6 last night or this morning. David was like, what does this mean? The more I read Zechariah, the more I'm encouraged to to keep asking God, Lord, what does this mean? And so the prophet asked that question. And and notice now, notice the angel explains the vision in verse 5. And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariots and the horses have just been with the Lord. And the Lord here is called the Lord of all the earth. He's no small tribal God. He's not some local deity. He is the Lord over all. The whole globe is his, and he rules over the whole globe. And they go out to the four winds, to the the four corners of the globe at his command. There is no land, beloved, where God does not rule. There are no people who are not under his sovereign control. The Lord is not just God of Israel. He is God or Lord of all the earth. And now these horses and these chariots, these angelic messengers, they are ready to do his bidding. Verse 6 gives us the destinations. The dappled horses go south. That's down toward Egypt. There's no mention of the red horse here, and apparently none of the horses go east or west. The attention really is on the first horses mentioned there, the black horse and the white horse. Notice they go north. First goes the black horse and chariots, then go the white horses and chariots. If black symbolizes, as it often does, judgment and death, then judgment and death are heading north. If white symbolizes peace, and prosperity, and purity, then that's following God's judgment. This is Calvin's take on that passage. There's some debate as to whether or not the the judgment is of Israel or of the areas of the north. If it's Israel, then what's being communicated in the text is that God's judgment has already come. He's sent them into exile, and now comes God's peace and God's purity for his people. Their judgment is about to be over. But the north here is not Canada. Right? Nobody goes to Canada. I'm sorry to the Canadians. Not this time of year anyway. (laughs) The north refers to the land north of Israel. Specifically to Babylon. The great enemy city and area of God's people where God's people had been in exile. And often when we read in the the Old Testament and we read of, of God sending judgment north or bringing judgment from north, he's referring specifically to Chaldea and Babylon and that area. So if you like, keep your finger here and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 11 to 16 gives us some context for what we're seeing now in Zechariah chapter 6. This is what the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, an almond branch. 
Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And that's what the chariots are going out to do is to perform God's word. But then this in verse 13 of Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, out of the, out of the north, disaster shall be loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm, coming, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. See, in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah was prophesying that the north or Babylon would be this cauldron that would be turned over on its side with the open part facing Israel. And the peoples of the north would descend like lava, as it were, around Jerusalem and and besiege Jerusalem. And that was God bringing his judgment against Israel for their sin and their idolatry. And for 70 years, they had been in that exile. But now God has freed them and has begun to bring them back to the land. So in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the Lord calls to Israel to flee from Babylon. You remember the words there? Up, up, free from the, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens. You see that reference in chapter 6 to the four winds is a reference to how he has scattered his people through the earth. I have sent you, I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord, up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. The white horse is following the black horse. God is calling his people back to himself and back to his land. So in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord sends his patrols out. Notice where he sends them. Out to the four winds of heaven, where his people have been scattered are now and now are beginning to be gathered. And notice in verse 7, the Lord's patrol is eager. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. Imagine these these mighty beasts pulling against against the reins, their muscles bulging, their feet stamping, and uh, they're neighing like war horses, ready to go do the Lord's will. It's a good picture of how we should be when we get God's word, isn't it? Eager, ready to run and do whatever the Lord calls us to do when he says go. Consider something. The Lord has already called his people out of Babylon. We saw that in Zechariah 2. They're already back in the land working on the temple. But here in the vision, the Lord sends the patrol back out. Why? The vision teaches us that the Lord will not rest until all his people are free. 
He sends his chariots back out to the four winds to make sure that all that he is gathering has indeed been gathered. That's why we're told in verse 8, look with me, Zechariah 6, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. In other words, that judgment has gone and preceded that peace which has followed, and the spirit of the Lord, which was not at rest in view of all of the oppression of of his people and the wickedness of the land has now been settled. God's heart has been settled as he has poured out his judgment on that land and as he's brought again blessing to his people. To put it very simply, beloved, God does not rest until he does his good in your life. God does not rest until he gathers his people unto himself. Until his justice and judgment is satisfied and his mercy in salvation is fulfilled. If you Israel, how comforting is this? Let, let your mind wander back. You're an ancient Israelite. You have lived the bulk of your life in slavery, in captivity, in exile, in a wicked place like Babylon. Many nights you have prayed for freedom. Many nights you've called out, how long, O Lord? Many days you have wondered, what happened to my cousin? What happened to my brother? We were separated when when Judah was plundered. Many days you have longed again to see your, your wife or to see the face of your children. You've heard the stories of those who tried to run away but were captured and taken to some far off place or or those who were caught trying to escape and were summarily executed. You've heard the stories of the brutality that's been inflicted upon your people and you've been crying out now for decades, how long, O Lord, would you gather us again? They've wanted to return home. They've wanted to put back together their families. Then, in God's amazing grace, when they had perhaps stopped praying and stopped looking, God replaced Babylon with Persia and then turned the heart of a Persian king to let them go, to send them home, to rebuild the walls, to repair the temple, to reconstitute the people and the culture of Israel. And you return home and nearly every day some people walk into the city haggard, worn out, clothes in tatters, faces worn but bright because they're coming home and and every time you see people come into the city you stop your work on the wall and you you stop your errands with the family and you look up and you watch those coming in and you search every face as you look for your lost spouse or you look for your lost children and when you don't see them you ask them have you heard of them do you do you know where they are do you know what's going on with them what's what's the news what's the news from afar And you long afresh for God to bring your people safely home. And then you get this word from the Lord. that He has sent his chariots to the four winds. And he is gathering his people. And his spirit is at rest 
His judgment is done. His mercy has come. And you will bring his people home. When African Americans were free from slavery in 1863, a great many of us began searching for loved ones. It's the greatest love story of slavery. Men and women who had been sold as property, sometimes tried to escape and were caught and killed, or for trying to escape were sold away to some other plantation. Families were torn apart and children were torn, torn apart. And, and it's remarkable when you read the slave testimonies how many of them, once freed, began to walk toward that last place where they heard their family was and the search for spouse and the search for child. Perhaps you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave and Solomon Northrup. You see the conclusion of that movie. Those many years of having been torn from his home and now makes it back to the land where he was once free and he walks into the house and he sees his wife sees his children. It's hope that God will reverse the bondage and reunite the people that sustains Israel, that sustained African slaves, that sustains his church, that God is gathering his people. Look to the winds. Look to the directions. Watch them come in long and hope for his heart is at rest and his people are being gathered. That's the hope of verse 8. God will not rest until he gathers his people back into his bosom. And what hope that gives us as praying parents, praying for children who do not know the Lord, praying spouses, praying for spouses who don't yet know the Lord. What hope that gives us as a church for, for church members erring away from the word of the Lord. What hope that gives us as a, as a new church trying to root itself in, in the community and, and longing for our neighbors to hear the gospel and to be brought in. God will reclaim those who are his. Spouses may be hard for decades, Children may be erring for years. Neighborhoods may seem impenetrable for the moment. But, but this strong God, stronger than his chariots, stronger than mountains, stronger than bronze, this strong God is mighty to save. This strong God is mighty to reclaim his people. There is no resistance to this God that can ultimately succeed. There is no resistance to this Lord's will that can thwart it. There is no resistance, no mountain, no opposition, no foreign kings, no power that can stand against this God. And this is for our hope, beloved. This is for our hope and for our joy no matter what's lost, the Lord may restore the years the locusts have eaten. This is what it means for his spirit to be at rest. But notice the second thing in our text. Not only does God put his spirit at rest, but God in verses 9 to 14 crowns 
a prophet. Verse 9 represents the secondary, a second prophecy in this chapter. Verse 1 began with a vision. Verse 9, now the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. God speaks to him in some way. And, and this is what is said, verses 10 and 11. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We don't know a great deal about these three men that um, Zechariah is sent to in verse 10. Nehemiah mentions one of them, Jediah, Nehemiah 7.39, as the head of the priests that had returned from exile in Babylon back to the land. Perhaps Heldai and Tobijah were priests too. Perhaps they were captured in Babylon as well, but now have arrived back to Jerusalem as free men. And apparently they came back with some wealth because notice they, they're the ones who contribute the silver and the gold for making a crown in verse 11. And perhaps they have some craftsman skills since they are the ones who, who make the crown. They're, able to, they're metal workers or jewelers and are able to sort of turn the, the raw materials into a crown of some royal skill. And notice this is urgent business. On the same day that Zechariah gathers these men, he must take them to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was among the last Israelites executed by the king of Babylon when Judah finally fell. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25 verses 18 to 22. That makes Josiah the son of a war hero. His dad was a martyr, if you will. Josiah's family story would have been well known in Israel. In fact, it's set down in Scripture in 2 Kings. And so God sends the prophet Zechariah to these men to call them together to complete this task, to crown Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, the crowning of a high priest as king in Israel is highly unusual. This is not ordinary. Prophets would sometimes be sent to choose a king on God's behalf. Priests would traditionally anoint the king, as in 1 Kings chapter 1. But priests and kings had separate duties that were not to be mixed. Think of it, if you will, as a kind of separation in church and state. Only the priests could offer sacrifices and kings could not take over that duty. And when they did, it was disastrous. And keep your finger in, in Zechariah 6 and turn with me to 1 Samuel 13, verses 8 to 14. There's a famous story there with King Saul. King Saul had been promised by Nathan the prophet that Nathan would, would come, or excuse me, Samuel, that Samuel would come at a certain time and make an offering for the people before they went up to war and, and carried on their business. But verse 8 says this, he, meaning Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, the prophet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from, from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, when I, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You see, he got all kinds of rationalizations, doesn't he? And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, Saul the king stepped over into the responsibility of Samuel the prophet. And for his disobedience, he lost his kingdom. The offices were not meant to be mixed in that way. So when we see Joshua the high priest being crowned as king in Zechariah, we're meant to understand that something unusual and prophetic is happening. I'll go back to Zechariah 6. I'll look with me there beginning in verse 12. They not only crowned Joshua, but they commissioned Joshua. Notice what's said. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, to Bijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now apparently that last verse, the crown is left in the temple, and those few men are named specifically, it seems, at least in the minds of some commentators, because they had been doubting and lagging in faith. And God was giving them a testament, an ornament of faith, and leaving this crown in the temple. But in verse 12, Zechariah nicknames Joshua, nicknames Joshua the branch. That's the second time he's been called that. The first time was in Zechariah 3 verse 8 when God promised that he would bring his servant the branch. Nothing more is said in Zechariah 3. But here in verse 12, it's clear that Joshua is the branch and he's called the branch because he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Not only shall Joshua the branch build the temple, but, but notice all the kingly aspects there. He shall bear royal honor. He shall sit and rule on his throne. He'll be a priest on his throne. And the prophecy looks forward to a day when king and prophet are not at odds. But there's peace between them. The council of peace between them. They're united. They're agreed the commander-in-chief has become the pastor-in-chief. But notice now, I said before the crowning of a priest was significant. Now I add to that title the significance of the, of the title, the branch. That title appears in several other places in Scripture. Y'all chase me through the Scripture here. Keep your finger in Zechariah 6 and look with me at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5 is another place where we see that title, the branch, mentioned. Verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Isaiah, we learn that the branch is a stump. A small nub, if you will, a descendant of Jesse, King David's father. The true branch will be descended from David. And according to Isaiah, the true branch will be the one who judges the entire earth in righteousness. Jeremiah also mentions the branch, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah says there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah clarifies the identity. The true branch is the Lord, our righteousness. Well, why is Joshua called the branch in Zechariah 6? Old Testament prophecy often has multiple fulfillments. There's a fulfillment in the day of the people to whom it's given, and then there is an ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so in his day, Joshua was the one who would lead in the work of rebuilding the temple. In that sense, he was a branch, but he was merely a picture. He was foreshadowing that true branch, that righteous branch, that that stump of David, that stump of Jesse, that son of David, who himself would branch out over all the earth, who himself would come to rule all of creation in righteousness and justice, who would be the true Savior. And this is why Jesus speaks the way he does, isn't it? That he is divine and we are branches. And this is why when we see Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, we see for the first time one who holds all the ancient offices in one person. He is prophet priest, and king. The Bible tells us he is king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible tells us that he is the word made flesh. He is is that prophet who is himself the very words. And as we heard in the testimony this morning from Hebrews 4, 15, he is our high priest who sympathizes with us. In this one office bearer are all the three offices, prophet, priest, and king. So to come to Christ is to come to him as one who is your Lord, who is your ruler, who is king over all of you. But you also come to him who is priest, who has sacrificed himself, sacrificed his own blood to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to cleanse us from sin, and to provide for us his own righteousness in the place of our sin. And is to come to him as prophet. The one who again is the word made flesh. The one through whom God has spoken finally in these last days. 
Oh, the days of God speaking to us by prophets like Zechariah in visions and dreams and various other ways are over. He has spoken to us in these last days perfectly in his son. The word who became flesh and dwelled among us. Oh, Christ Jesus is all the king, prophet, or priest you'll ever need. He is a sufficient savior. You need God's direction into your life. Come to this king. You need God's mercy and sacrifice and you need his intercession. Come to this priest. You need to know the mind of God, the will of God, the word of God. Come to Christ. Come to him who has given himself for your salvation and has joined together all the crowns of king and priest and prophet and who works perfectly in every role. Come to him in repentance and faith, and he will rescue you from sin. He will rescue you from judgment. He will save you for God's love. He will provide you righteousness, and he will provide you hope beyond this world. For this king who sits on his throne is never threatened by the kingdoms of this earth. This priest who sacrificed himself needs nothing added to his sacrifice. And this prophet who speaks the very words of God never utters a single falsehood. You can trust him. You can rest in him. Come to him. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you've not yet come to Jesus and understood him to be your king and Lord, Understood him to be your priest who sacrificed himself for your sins. Understood him to be the very word of God. We would like nothing more than to help you understand these things. To help you get to know Jesus. He lives and he reigns and he saves sinners. If you would confess your sins and repent of them and trust in him, the crucified, buried, resurrected and reigning Lord, You will have a new life, righteousness, peace with God, adoption into his family, everlasting life, and unshakable hope. That's why we exist, is to help people know him. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, just after the service, talk to any one of us that we might might introduce you. God's spirit is set at rest when his judgment is fulfilled and His peace is offered. God crowns his priest and it's not just Joshua, but it's Jesus. And I see this final thing. God gathers his people. That's what we see in that last verse there, verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is kind of the final exhortation of this second vision in the chapter. It might help us if we just pull these three sentences apart, working from them from the, from the bottom up. So notice here, the promises of God are often conditional. Uh, those promises depend on God's people obeying God's commands. That's what we see at the end of the verse. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
Now, we find statements like that throughout the Old Testament, but we also find them in the New Testament. So the Lord Jesus says things like this to his disciples. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Or in John's gospel where he says repeatedly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We're not to think that the love of God or the love of the Lord is consistent with habitual disobedience. We're not to think that God's great promises are truly ours if we show no regard for his rule in our lives. Obedience, beloved, to Christ is fundamental to Christian discipleship. Obedience to Christ is fundamental to the Christian covenant, to the new covenant. God exerts demands and we must submit to them. He saves, we obey. That's the order too. It's not we obey and then he saves. He saves and we obey. And all the riches of his blessing are best and most fully experienced in our submission to God's will and rule. In other words, if you want to enjoy the goodness of the Lord, enjoy it the way he instructs. Enjoy it through in obedience. So there's no sorrow added to it. It's not that God won't be good to you if you're disobedient. He's always good to the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. He's always going to be good, but there's a great chance that we can mistake his gracious goodness to us as his approval even while we are in disobedience. Oh, please. God is not mocked. Do not deceive yourself. Come into that freedom which is obedience itself. Come into that grace which is submission to Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His commandments are not burdensome. They are good and life-giving if in Christ we yield to them. And all the good blessings that he gives you, let me give you a simple illustration. For those of you, for example, who are married, or for those of you who are children, we're all in one of those categories, right? All right, so it's meant to apply to everybody, okay? For those of you who are married, how much better is your marriage when you obey what the Lord says to do in marriage? A lot better. Amen. 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 Wisdom speaks from the streets. You know, <laughs> it's a lot better. If I love my wife the way Christ says to love her, the way Christ has loved the church, which I'm still trying to learn how to do. Oh, she is happier. And she is more eager to serve. The dinner tastes better. I mean, everything's just better, man. It's just better. You know, or, or we've all been children. How much more enjoyment do we get out of Christmas is coming, right? How much more enjoyment do we get out of Christmas and the things we receive at Christmas? If, in fact, we receive them and we also know our parents' pleasure in us. We can see that they're happy to give it to us. And in part, they're happy to be generous toward us because they, they recognize in us a respect for them, a love for them, a, a submission to their instruction and their rule and authority. I mean, Christmas is just brighter. The lights are brighter. The, the, the snow, though cold, it somehow is merry, you know. We sing about Jack Frost nipping at your nose, you know, and Rudolph the Red Nose. I mean, all those things just have much more merriment if we've been nice and not naughty, right? So it is with all God's blessings, beloved. 
They are best and most fruitfully enjoyed when we have been honoring Him and serving Him and using those blessings the way He prescribes. So, He exhorts His people to obey Him. But notice now that second sentence there. It's also through this that we get an assurance of the, of the Lord's Word, that He has sent His Word through His prophets. When we obey His Word and experience the promises of His Word, we are sure that His Word really is His Word. If you want to know whether God really exists, or whether the Bible really is true, obey God. Obey what you see in the Bible. Look to his promises in his word. Submit to them and watch how the Lord assures you of the truth of his word. In Israel's case, that that assurance of his word came in the form of a a completed temple. And in our day, it may come in a variety of forms, all, all true and good. But especially it will come in the form of his blessings in his son. Obey the gospel. Believe on Jesus, repent of sin, enter into discipleship under his lordship, follow him, and watch how all that God promises as a consequence comes to pass. How his word, just the truth of it, is just magnified. The truth that it tells about us in our sins and the truth that it tells us about the hope we have in Christ and of his glory. How those become sweeter and richer in in 4D and and 4K and all the other stuff that's out right now, right? It just becomes clearer and more vibrant. And the word is alive and sweet when we trust it and obey it. And we cannot think that we'll have that kind of assurance of his word if we never give ourselves to it. That's the conundrum, beloved. If you hear you're not yet a Christian and you're not yet sure the Bible is God's word and you're trying to strike some bargain with God to prove his word while you stand over here in disobedience, (laughs) the Lord's not going to enter into that bargain with you. You are his. He's not yours. And his word is true whether we submit to it or not. No, the answer that you're seeking comes through your submission. You want to know if the Bible's true? Honestly and openly give yourself to it. And watch how God brings to pass assurances of his word. Which brings us to the final thing we want to observe here. Notice in the first part of that verse, he's the most fundamental promise of the Lord. If we spread his word, He will build his temple. In new covenant terms, if we spread his gospel, he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We obey the gospel in proclaiming the gospel and and delighting in the gospel and celebrating in the gospel for our own soul's sake. Here's, Here's what we have written in the new covenant as a promise that he will build his church. Which is the New Testament temple. He will gather people from all the corners of the globe, from every tribe and every nation and every language, and he will make them one new people in whom he dwells by his spirit. This is why we want to be so, so earnest and faithful in prayer that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest. Beloved, the fields are white. They are white and ready for the picking. But Jesus says the laborers are few. 
No, this is why he's called us to himself in part. He's called us to himself to enjoy him, to feast upon his goodness, to delight in him as our souls delight. But in that delight and in that feeding upon him, he's also called us to go out and to tell others where they may find bread, the bread of life. To, to make it known from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. And this is why at 1230, may we be whatever we're doing at, at Young Chow Eating Chinese or whatever it is. At 1230, we should stop and pray for Pastor Jeremy and the saints over in Lincoln Heights who are reaching out with the gospel. I pray that God's promise would be fulfilled in the preaching of that brother's words, God's word. And this is why we want to remember those who are on the mission field, serving in foreign lands, crossing cultures to make Jesus known. It's not just because they feel like Indiana Jones and want to do something adventurous. It's because, as verse 15 says, they are obeying God's word. What's his last word to his church? Go into all the world and make disciples. Pray for missionaries. Pray for lands without the gospel and without the church. We want to be a people who have a, a heart as big as the globe. That is, that is present on the four corners of the block. And is, and is spreading out to the four corners of the earth. It's where God sends his chariots. And his chariots may be sped along by our prayers. It's where God works his will in the saving of sinners. And more sinners may be brought into the kingdom by our prayers. For this God who is sovereign, notice in verse 15, that first sentence, he uses his people to do his work. That's us, beloved. We are the ones who've been called from far off to build the temple of the Lord, to build his church in which he dwells. Can you think of a more precious thing to give your life to than making Jesus known? in all of his glory, telling of his love to all of the nations and seeing this temple constructed of living stones until we're all there in eternity. This is why we exist. This is why we have been assembled. Let us obey the Lord and see his blessing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are our high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses yet is without sin. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't look for another prophet. We don't look for visions and dreams. You are the word of God. The fullness of the revelation of God. And you have spoken to us the very mind of God. And so we pray, Lord, grant that we would gladly obey it, that we would be greatly blessed, that we would see your will come to pass in the gathering of your people in our day. Do this, O Lord. Encourage us as you encouraged Israel. Strengthen us as you strengthened Israel. Strengthen us all the more so because we have your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our last song is printed on page nine of your bulletins. It continues with the theme that we were singing.